passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 11, where we see uh, the establishment of kind of a unique church in Antioch. Prior to Antioch, the church in Jerusalem had been largely made up of, in fact, almost exclusively made up of Jewish Christians. Okay? They came from the Jewish heritage, the Jewish background, and so a lot of the Old Testament stuff was reflected in this early church in Jerusalem. In fact, when it starts to spread out, uh, people get kind of concerned about that, and they inquire of the apostles, hey, what's going on here? Uh, even the Gentiles are starting to believe. What should we require of them? And so we see in Antioch the first establishment of a church that has a large population of Hellenistic Christians, Greek-speaking Christians. Uh, They were not Jewish. They did not come from that that background. They were not stayed in that tradition of Judaism. But now the Gentiles are starting to come in, and they're starting to bring a new perspective, and that changes the way the church looks. So I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. It says this, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Okay, now here, let's set the stage here. Remember Stephen, he gets gets stoned to death and dies. Now apparently a persecution broke out upon believing Christian people as a result of that. And what did they do? Did they stay and fight? No, they scattered. Sometimes when God brings persecution on the church and it scatters, it's for a very good reason so that it can infiltrate and influence the places where the people go. Now, they didn't lock, stock, and barrel, pick up the church and move it, but they as individuals were dispersed, and you might refer to it in the Old Testament as the diaspora. They get dispersed over a large area that now has the opportunity to influence the people that live there. So now, in verse 20, some of them, however, men of Cyprus... Now remember, they were only spreading the word to who? The Jews only. Now that's kind of selective, isn't it? You know, you have to wonder about that. Now what was the big problem with, the, with Judaism? You know, the Jews, remember, they were charged with God to do what? To represent him to the world. And what had they done? They had confined him to just the chosen people of Israel. Now... So they come from this tradition that says, boy, it's, you know, it's a Jewish club here. And we, we have to maintain that, maintain the purity, because we are the chosen ones of God. So now in verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Now what were Greeks? They were Gentiles. Okay, they were Gentiles, and they start spreading the word to the Gentile population, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, this is kind of interesting, because the news of this Gentile spreading of the gospel gets back to the the mojos back in Jerusalem, and you might think, well, we need to police that. We need to make sure that nothing bad happens here. We need to, need to make sure that we protect this thing for the Jewish people. But notice what, they ha- what happens. So what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, we see here the establishment of kind of the worldwide church. The church that not only includes Jewish people, but also Gentile people. Now, how many of us are Gentile people? Man, aren't you glad that somebody thought of us? You know, because we could have been left out in the dark. And so, therefore, we see the establishment of this church, and we're going to take a look, and we're going to answer the question, what is the church? You know, what is it supposed to be? Is it a building with just four walls, and you get together every Sunday, and you do stuff? No, I want you to know, first of all, that you are the church. You don't come to church, you are the church. And wherever you are is where Marina Church is. Whether you're at your home, whether you're in your neighborhood, whether you're at your workplace, no matter where you are, Marina Church is there because you are the church. You represent the the God of the universe in a communal aspect. And as you relate to each other, you get a chance to show the goodness of God to the people that you have contact with. So let's define church. I want you to go away today with a very clear definition of what the church is. And we're going to put all these four points together to make a complete definition of the church. The first one is that the church is a group of baptized believers. Baptized believers. Now, there's two elements there. Now, I want you to notice in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Now, what, is, what, what word did they spread? It was the word of God. Okay, the word of God was spread to just the Jewish people. But this special word of God is defined here better in verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, what is the good news? The good news starts out with bad news. Did you know that? What are we apart from Christ? We are... Okay, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses is the way the the Bible would describe that. That means that we are separated from God because of the selfishness that we express, and that selfishness always leads to bad decisions. And so therefore, when we become self-centered, we are alienated from God. We are distanced from him. That's the bad news. Now, what's the good news? The good news is that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us to die for that selfishness, to die for that sinfulness, to die for all the transgressions that we've committed, to pay the penalty that God's justice demands. God's justice demands a penalty be paid for all wrongdoing. Okay? So now, here's the choice the gospel gives to us. We get a chance to accept the good news. We get a chance to accept the payment that God made through his son Jesus by dying on the cross for the penalty of mankind accept that, or he gives us the opportunity to pay ourselves. Now, isn't that pretty cool? God, the God of justice, says you can pay for yourself and all of your own transgressions and all your own sinfulness, or you can accept the payment that I made with Jesus. 
Now, how do you make your own payment? Okay, you live a life of selfishness from the time you're born till the time you die. At the time you die, that selfishness pays some dividends. Okay, it pays something. Okay, you get paid for what you've done. And so the payment for that is eternal separation from God. And that way, you spend eternity paying for all your wrongdoing. Now, I love that system. I love that system because you get a choice. Every human being in the world gets a choice as to how they're going to pay and justify and, and, and be just before God. You can make your payment or you can accept the payment that God made for you through his son Jesus. Now, they spread that to the Gentile people. You can imagine the Gentile people were kind of caught off guard by that, don't you think? You know, first of all, what do most people today believe about humanity? And most people today believe that humanity is basically good. We're really good people. In fact, you'll find some psychologists that say, your children don't, are born good and they learn bad from you. Now, Cindy, is, she can tell you that my kids learn bad from me. There are many times where I would do something as a young father, you know, as a young husband, and she would look at me and she'd say, your kids are going to grow up to be just like you. <laughs> it was never a compliment. Never. And so we, we believe that, you know, that kids become sinners because they're around us. The truth of the matter is that the Bible teaches for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born in that condition, alienated and separated from God. Now, nobody wants to believe that a newborn baby, when you cuddle that little baby, has anything wrong with it. You know, these babies are perfectly innocent, right? And we cuddle them and we look at them and we coo over them and we do all this stuff. But it doesn't take very long for that little baby resting in your arms to start crying. Now, there's two sources for that cry. Okay? One is that they're hungry. And they demand to be fed when? Now. now. They will not stop crying until you feed them. Okay? Now, when you feed them, here, and this is kind of a cyclical thing, when you feed them, after a little while, they start crying again. They're not necessarily hungry at this point, but that digestive thing that is built within them has run its course, and their diapers are needing to be changed, and they do what? They cry. Now, would you consider that, and I know this is going to be a stretch for some of us who love those little cuddly babies, uh, this is going to be a stretch for us. But would you consider that selfish? I want food and I want it when? Right now. I want my diapers changed and I want them changed when? Right now. That's kind of built within them. Now, it's not an ugly thing, and I don't mean to say that. You know, it's not like they're going out and selling handguns to kids on the school campuses. They're not doing any of that stuff, but they're being selfish. And when we stop and analyze ourselves, that's what we realize about us, is that we kind of want what we want, and we want it when? We want it right now. We want what we want, and we want it when we want it, and you deserve a break today, so go to McDonald's. You know, we're, we're inundated with all of that kind of selfish thought, but really our sin nature is indicative of our selfishness. And so the Jewish people, you know, and, the, and now the Gentile people are being brought to an awareness of what humanity really is. Humanity is, is suffering without the forgiveness of God for the transgressions that they've committed because God is a just God. Now, it says here that, we, that the church is made up of a group of baptized believers. Number one, believe right about who you are. Okay? Without Christ, I am a selfish son of a gun. Okay? 
And, all, and when you see somebody do something that is not selfish, you, you sometimes wonder, wow, that's really kind of unusual. That's really remarkable. And you have this awe of that because now you see people operating in the forgiveness of God under the power of God. And so you see a life transformation that happens when you realize who you are. So now you come to this awareness that I'm, I'm, I'm messed up without Christ. So therefore, I do a couple of things. Number one, I confess that. I confess it to God. God, I am a mess without you. I've tried to live life my own way, and check it out. Here's what I've gotten. I've gotten this and this and this and this, and man, all of it is futile. Okay, all of it is meaningless. And so, Lord, I ask you to forgive me for my selfishness, and now I want to commit my life to follow you. I want to learn how you say I ought to live life, and that's following. Learn what you say about how to live life, and I want to do that. I want to walk in the way that you walk. And so therefore, Lord, teach me. I submit myself to you. And now there's a transformation that happens there. And it's what we call becoming born again, being transformed from death to life. Okay. Now, what is this baptism part? Well, Jesus tells people that they ought to be baptized. In fact, one time uh, Jesus is walking in the desert and he sees John the Baptist baptizing some people. And John, he walks up to John and you can imagine if Jesus came up to you and said, hey, can you do something for me? Who am I to do anything for you? And he comes to John and he says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John goes, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not even worthy to untie the thongs of your sandals. Now that was a slave's job. A slave would, when somebody would come to your home, a slave would untie their sandals, take their shoes off, and wash their feet because they lived in a time where you walked in the dirt and you wore sandals. I don't know if you've ever done that, walked sandals, dirt, your feet get nasty. Okay? And so the servant's job was to clean the feet of the people who came. And now John says, man, I'm not even worthy to do that to you, Christ. I'm not worthy to do that for you, Jesus. I can't do that. And Jesus says what? He says, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. I want you to baptize me. And he does. Okay. Now, he shows us by his example, and he also gives us a command to be baptized. Notice in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, how do you make disciples? Anybody know? Lucky for us, it's explained right here in the scripture. Go and make disciples. Number one, baptize them. Notice there's a sequence here. It says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, there's a sequence here. Okay, somebody comes and they say, I want to be a disciple. So what do you do first? What's it say? Baptize them. A lot of people think that baptism is kind of the end of the road. Actually, baptism is the beginning of the road, which says I'm identifying with Christ. I come into the water to be baptized, and I'm representing my old life of sinfulness, selfishness. And I go under the water representing death. Now, Jesus died, was buried in a tomb for three days, and then he rose again. So when we come up out of the water, we're raised to walk a new life. We're resurrected with Jesus. Okay, so therefore, this baptism is a symbolic act that says, this is a beginning point of my walk with Christ. And then, what's the obligation of the people that are making disciples? Teach them. Then you teach them. You do it after you baptize them, not before. A lot of people, like I said, think that you need to know everything before you're baptized. You need to know some things. True. What do you think you need to know before you're baptized? 
okay, that you are, that you're a messed up person, that you're selfish, okay, and that you're a sinner, and that you need forgiveness of your sin, and you ask God to forgive you of your sin, and then you say, okay, I'm going to follow you. Wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. Now, do you know where God's going to lead you when you say that? Yeah, forward, but you don't necessarily know the destination nor the path. That's what messes a lot of people up. A lot of people say, I can't follow unless I know where I'm going and where I'm going to end up. You know, and that's a shame. Because if we trust the God of the universe as he's revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, if we trust those guys, we'll go follow them anywhere. Have you ever had a great leader in your life and say, you know, I don't know where we're going, but I'm going to follow you. I remember one time we... Uh, when I was at another church, there was a guy that was retiring from the, from the Air Force, and he asked me to come and participate in his retirement ceremony. And it was amazing, the men that talked about him and what a great leader he was and how they would not have been who they were if they had not followed him. He was a life-changing element in their life. And I remember getting up afterwards being so impressed with this. And I remember he, he hadn't been in our church for very long, and I didn't know him real well. And I was so impressed by what the people said that at the end of the service, I said, you know what? If I had known this man earlier, I would have followed him too. And there's just those people that have that charisma to say, I, I know where I'm going. I know how I'm going to get there. I don't know what the destination is. I don't know what the path is. But man, I know it's good. I know it's good and it's good for you to follow. And we all need to recognize that Jesus is that kind of guy. We don't know what the path is, necessarily. We don't know where the destination is going to lead us. But we do know that we can trust him to the point that we say, I will follow you. And that's what baptism transforms us to become, to learn, to be taught, to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Okay, so it's a group of baptized believers. Now, the believer part implies that you trust, okay, that you trust. And how do you know if you trust Jesus or not? Are you willing to go where he goes? Are you willing to do what he says? And if you're not, then you're probably not believing. So therefore, uh, church is a group of baptized believers, number two, who gather under spiritual leadership. Okay? In Acts chapter 11, 21 through 26, we see this formation of this church at Antioch. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and so what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. They sent a spiritually mature person to go and and check it out. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, what does a spiritual leader do? Well, here we see Barnabas being the spiritual leader, and he was encouraging them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. In other words, follow where Jesus has led. Do what God has instructed. Be true to that with all of your heart. Don't give it just kind of an effort. Don't expect it just to make you a better version of the you that you are now. Expect it to be transformative so that you can become all that God has designed you to be. Now, What are some of the qualifications for a spiritual leader? Well, we find in verse 24 that he was several things. Number one, he was a good man. Now, what what does good mean? He was a good man. I'm going to suggest something here for you to think about when you consider people good. They have your best interest at heart. They want you to succeed. They want you to become everything that God has 
intended for you to become. They want you to flower and bloom and blossom. That's not the right order, but they want you to do that. Okay, they want you to become everything that God has created you to become. So he was a good man. He was also full of the Holy Spirit. Now, can you be partially full of the Holy Spirit? Well, you can't be partially full, but can you be partially filled with the Holy Spirit or have a minimal attachment to the Holy Spirit? I'm going to suggest that not not if you're going to be effective. You need to be completely full. Now, back when we were baptized, we were completely submerged under the water. Okay, completely submerged. You'll find that there are passages of Scripture that talk about being baptized in the Spirit. Baptized in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to suggest that the same picture applies to that, that you're completely submerged and immersed in the Spirit of God. And really, baptism, the word baptism has a little picture that goes along with it. And a lot of Greek verbs have this, have a picture that goes along with it. And the picture for the word baptizo is a ship that was once sailing on the surface of the ocean, sprung a leak, got completely filled with water, and sunk so that it's completely filled with water, completely surrounded by water. That's what baptism in the Holy Spirit is all about. So that the Holy Spirit is so, you're completely inundated with it and completely surrounded by him. So that when you face life's circumstances, that we might consider circumstances, but when you face life's opportunities, you'll know the direction God wants you to go because you will know his voice because you're surrounded by him and filled with him. Now, does that leave much room for selfishness? No, it does not. So he was full of the Holy Spirit. It also says that he was full of faith. Faith is kind of an interesting thing. A lot of times people say, well, I'm practicing my faith. You know, and what it means in that context is that I have this set of religious beliefs that I have about God. And so therefore I'm practicing those things. And you'll find a lot of people practicing their faith. I really want you to perfect your faith, you know. And the way you perfect your faith is that you do one very critical thing, and that is learn the voice of God. Learn to hear him when he speaks. Now, how do you do that? How do you know when it's God and when it's something else? Well, you know the voice of God is absolutely accurate, pure, and true in his word. Okay? When you read the word of God, that's the word of God. And it is always accurate and true. So the more of that that I get in my head, the more of that I get in my life, the more I'm capable now of hearing the promptings of God when it's not written and when there's just this encouragement to do something. How many of you were encouraged to do something this last week? Okay, Yeah, you were encouraged. How many of you associated that with the Spirit of God leading you? Many times those promptings to do good are, are from God. And I'm going to say most of the time, if it's a prompting to do something godly and good, it is always from God. Now, I'm, don't raise your hand. How many of you accomplished that and said, I heard God and I responded? You know, I told you a couple of weeks ago about standing in line at the ice cream place and there was a lady with her, her family in front of me, and I got this prompting from God, pay for her ice cream. And by the time I fumbled around and said, oh, you know, I don't know how much money, I don't know, you know, she had already paid. And I'm certain, I am certain that I missed God's prompting on that one. Sometimes we can miss, but part of that is, is learning. 
We need to learn the voice of God. We need to learn to respond quickly and obediently. So that's what Barnabas was. He was a man of faith. He heard God, he knew his voice, and he responded with action. Faith is always action. It's never just mental belief. Faith is trust. When you came in this morning, you sat down on the chair, right? Did you have some trust in the chair? Okay, yeah, you trusted that it was going to hold you up, right? Have you ever sat in a chair and and it collapsed? I have. You know, I remember one time there's a, a giant, I think it's a Chinese restaurant downtown. And uh, this has been 15, 20 years ago. And we went there, a bunch of people, a bunch of guys from, from church went. And uh, I was sitting there and they have very spindly legs on these elegant Chinese chairs. And as I scooted back to get out, the leg broke and I tumbled to the ground. And what did my friends say? They said, did you have enough lunch? As if my weight broke the leg. No. So when I, for, for a while after that, when I sat down in a chair, I kind of put my hand on it first. I didn't want to have that experience again. So my faith in the chair was rocked because it didn't perform as I expected it to. Here's the beauty. God will always perform just as you expect him to. He will never fail you. He will never deceive you. He will never let you down. Therefore, you can always trust him. And that's what Barnabas was. Okay, now, uh, he's, he's um, a man of faith. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was a good man. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So there's the spiritual leadership. And now, it gets better than that. Barnabas then goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Christians, followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so now we are a church, a group of baptized believers who gather under spiritual leadership for what? Well, number one, to worship God. We are we brought together to worship God. We had a great time of worship today. I love our band. They just do the greatest job in leading us to worship and recognizing, you know, the, the value of expressing our praise to God. Now, Luke 4, 8, Jesus answered. He says in this, this is in response to uh, uh, the question. It, uh, actually, it's in response to the devil. And the devil is tempting him to, to follow him and to, and to really kind of coerce Jesus to be his, his gopher. And so Jesus answered this to, to Satan. He says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now Jesus tells his enemies that we ought to, people who are followers of Jesus, ought to worship him and serve him only. Does that mean we should not serve each other? Because it says serve him only. Ah, but how do you serve God? How do you serve God without serving other people that he loves and cares for. We find in Romans 12, 1, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And what does it say about giving your bodies to God? This is your true and proper worship. Worship is not what we do with our lips and our singing. It's what we do with our bodies, how we offer it to God, to be used by him to touch the lives of other people. In Mark 12, 30, we find a guy that comes to Jesus and he's trying to really kind of trap him. 
and he says, what's the greatest commandment? What is the greatest thing that we could do? What's the most important commandment? Here, you tell us, Jesus. And so Jesus does. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love the Lord your God that way. Love him with every fiber of your being. I, I remember one time in uh, another church, I was sitting at a wedding uh, reception, and this lady comes up to me, and she sits by me, and she says, you know, Mike, I really have a hard time loving God. I said, really? How to, and she says, I just don't know how to love him. You know, he's not a, a physical being where I can, you know, do whatever, you know, hug him or tell him I love him. I say, he's a spiritual being. You can hug him and tell him you love him. You can do all that stuff. Yeah, but it just doesn't seem right. It just seems fake to me. I said, well, one of the things the Bible teaches us is that the greater that you have been forgiven, the greater will be your expression of love. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and check your track record out and just kind of evaluate what you've been forgiven of. And when you realize the depth of God's forgiveness, you will have but one response, and that will be to love him, to love him. I don't know if you've ever hurt somebody severely and badly, and, and, and then they forgave you, but it just causes you to love that person. And when we recognize the depth of depravity that we have as human beings and the forgiveness that God has given us and the, the great mercy and grace that he has shown to us by giving us heaven, you can do nothing but to love him. And so if you have a difficult time loving God, I want you to go back and think of what you have been forgiven and that will create a greater love for him. Okay, so now... We have this definition going. It's a church is a group of baptized believers who gather under spiritual leadership to worship God and, number four, to serve others. Now, we love God many times by serving those whom he loves. In Acts eleven nineteen through 30, notice what the disciples do here. The, this new fledgling church, what do they do? They give. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Okay, that's back in the home church, okay, back in the home country. Uh, here they are in Antioch, and it's a very Hellenistic city. And now they're going to say, we need to help our brothers and sisters that are, that are back there living under this system of the Christian Judaism, and we need to help them out because they need, they need some financial help. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. It, it's amazing how there's two things that really show up in the life of young believers, Number one is generosity. Generosity. They want to give. And because they recognize how much has been given to them. The other one is hospitality. I just want to, I want to welcome all the people. I want to love the people that have been so caring about me and have in, in, helped me come into the church and helped me in my journey with, with Jesus. And so therefore those two things, generosity and hospitality, are evident in the hearts and the lives of believers. We want to do things for other people. Mark 12, 31. Jesus kind of concludes his, his talk about the greatest commandment. Now, he's already given the greatest commandment, right? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the greatest one. But he says there's one that's second to that. The very second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. 
no commandment greater than these. Love God, love others. Two greatest commandments. So therefore, if you're going to characterize Christianity, those are the two things to do it. A church is a group of baptized believers who gather under spiritual leadership so that they can worship God and serve other people. That's what a church is. I pray that we will exercise that today. And we have a great opportunity today, right this afternoon. In fact, there's ladies coming across the street, and I'm sure they're coming to a baby shower. And as they come to the baby shower, you know, they've kind of infringed on us, haven't they? You know, when you walked in today, you weren't sure that you were at Marina Church. You know, but this is our way to serve them, to allow them to set up early, to allow them maybe to inconvenience us a little bit. But nonetheless, we get a chance to serve someone else. And that's the hard part. But uh, (laughs) that's the hard part. But we're going to do that. And so therefore today, I want to ask you to bow with me for 